A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, this is the last week of Epiphany, uh, and my, my prayer has been that the final beams of the Epiphany light would just shine on our hearts, that we would see the glory of Christ afresh today. Uh, in this, the Feast of the Transfiguration, which is just a, a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. Before we get into that, I, I want to speak a little bit about Lent. Uh, which is uh, beginning this Wednesday with Ash Wednesday and will go all the way through till Easter. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with Lent, it is, again, the season between Ash Wednesday and Easter where the church reflects on the cross. Uh, And in some ways, we evaluate our lives up next to the cross. Where are we giving our time? Where are we giving our attention uh, in a way that isn't towards Christ? And it's a, a time to turn and return to Christ wholeheartedly with true worship and true relationship. Uh, And so typically, this is a season that's marked by fasting, uh, and it's meant to reflect Jesus' time in the wilderness after his baptism. Uh, Traditionally, people will fast things like alcohol or sweets or or meat on Fridays, uh, but many people in our community have chosen to fast from things that just kind of take them away from God, that distract them in their day-to-day life, maybe media or, or television or something like that. So I really encourage you to dig into Lent this season and commit to a fast. Uh, there was a, a story I heard this week of a, of a man, and he would go to a bar every Friday night, uh, and it was because he, he used to live with his brothers, and they had this kind of ritual uh, of drinking a pint together each and every night, a uh, Friday night, sorry. And, and eventually his brothers moved away, one went to Europe and one went to Australia, and so they would all gather at the same time each Friday night and have three pints to symbolize their drinking together. Uh, and, and it took a while, these, this one man coming in each and every Friday, sitting alone, not talking to anyone, drinking three beers, and then going home and not saying a word. Uh, and then one Friday, uh, apparently he came in and had two beers. Uh, and the people didn't really know what to make of that. And so they just assumed one of his brothers had clearly died. Uh, and so they didn't say anything because they didn't really know him. Uh, and then the next week, he came in again and, and only had two beers. And, and the, the people around him were just a little heartbroken for this guy who had a beer with him, or with his brothers every night, and now apparently one brother had died. Uh, and a man went up to him uh, and said, you know, I'm really sorry to hear about the loss of your brother. And he said, oh, my brother didn't die. I'm just fasting alcohol for Lent. So, <laughs> so don't do a lame fast like that. <laughs> That's clever, though. <laughs> but anyways, uh, I, I do think Lent oftentimes gets a bit of a bad rap. 
We, if you have a, a dread of Lent coming, uh, I think we're missing the importance of Lent. Uh, it's a season of repentance, and it's a season of reflection, but what are we actually reflecting on? We're not reflecting on suffering. We're reflecting on the saving work of Christ. We're reflecting on the fact that by his cross and his blood spilled, that we are washed of our sin, we are washed of our guilt, we are washed of our shame. And Lent is really, really a beautiful season. And it isn't a season without hope. It's a season where we eagerly and anxiously anticipate Easter. We anticipate the resurrection. We anticipate the the greatest day of all, where Christ was triumphant over the grave and raised from the dead. So friends, I, I encourage you to give yourself to Christ afresh in Lent. As we talked about last week, his way is true life. His way is true freedom. And anything less than his way, though the world might tell us that's where freedom is, it actually is death. And anything other than Christ's way, well, it'll decay our lives, it'll decay our souls, and it'll desensitize us to the reality of sin. And when we get into that kind of groove of Christianity, it really does prohibit any freedom. Because true freedom, true life, is in Jesus. So again, give yourselves, starting on Wednesday to Lent, to to confession, to repentance, to allowing the Spirit to purge the death and decay from our hearts, and to reprioritize everything about your life towards Christ, to following him, to meditating on him, and to embracing the saving work of the cross. I, I don't want to hear a ton of, oh, Lent sucks. Lent's so painful. Lent is grace. It is encountering the Lord. It is encountering his saving work. And it's encountering his work of removing guilt and shame from us. So embrace a fast. Don't do two of three beers. <laughs> That's a bad fast. But find, pray about it over the next coming days and ask, Lord, what would you like for me to give up to, to, to draw closer to you in each, each and every day. So again, our, our text for this morning uh, is the Transfiguration, which is just a, a beautiful story. It is full of Old Testament allusions, uh, namely Exodus 19 to 24. Uh, it, it is showing uh, a better version of the covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai. We're not going to talk about that much today, but I would encourage you to, over the next couple days, to read Exodus 19 to 24 and to see the transfiguration as a better version of that. Uh, The transfiguration is is truly showing each and every one of us the glory of Christ. It is showing us who he is in all of his splendor, in all of his majesty. Uh, I love that John is one of the disciples who go up the mountain with with Jesus, and he begins his gospel with this statement, that we have seen his glory, that you can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And indeed, that the ordinariness of the humanity of Christ was temporarily just stripped away. That that what you couldn't see day in and day out was his divinity. You could see his humanness, but in this moment, the glory of God himself was on display. And this mountaintop is covered by a cloud. Not just any cloud, it's a bright cloud. You look at the Old Testament, the times the cloud came in the wilderness, and there's lightning, and then there's sparks all around. It is a bright cloud of the glory of God descending on the mountaintop and overshadowing the disciples. The manifest presence of God had descended upon the people that day, and they saw Christ truly for who he was. 
Nothing about his glory or his divinity was hidden this again. And friends, it is important for us today to see Christ for who he truly is, to see his divine illumination. Because if we have a warped view of Christ, then fundamentally we'll have a warped view of his way. His way will seem less ideal. His way won't seem like love. His way won't seem like freedom because we're not seeing Christ as he truly is. But to see the Lord and to have a revelation of God in all of his glory, that he is full of grace, he is full of truth, it actually gives us the confidence and the assurance in his goodness and in his love to follow him. Amen? Isn't that what we all want? That's all I've been praying for this week is, Lord, show me who you really are. Draw me deeper into the reality of your godness of your divine majesty. Let's dig in together, verses 1 to 3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. So after six days of waiting, which is the same amount of time that Moses was in the cloud of glory on Sinai before he goes up to the consumed mountain, the consumed with fire, after six days they're waiting. And friends, just a side point, times of waiting are not outside of the way of God. That God is about to do something spectacular on earth and there is a time of intentional waiting of the disciples before they enter in. Your your times of waiting are not purposeless, they're not punishment, but they are a time of consecration, and they're a time of preparation, and they're a time of readying our hearts for what God is going to do. Times of waiting are profoundly purposeful in the kingdom. So after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain. He takes them up to a spiritual high place. Mountaintops in the Bible speak of spiritual high points. So he takes them up. And that's important because he went and they followed. And that is a, a fundamental truth about our faith. Jesus goes up the mountain and they follow him wherever he goes. This experience fundamentally was not for Jesus to feel assured that he is God. This was for them to see Christ for who he truly is. If we look at Sinai, Moses went up the mountain alone, which is still pretty neat. But Jesus, friends, takes us up into his glory. He goes from glory to glory to glory, and he brings us along with him if we follow him. This is not something just for someone else. It's not just for those three. This is the truth of all those who are in Christ. When he goes up, he brings us up with him. Where he is today, those who are in him are with him in heavenly places. He takes us in to him. He takes us from glory to glory. It is his work, his doing, and not ours. And the nature of Jesus is that he is always leading and he is always inviting us wherever he is going. He's saying, come and be with me there. Amen. And it's not something they could fabricate on their own. You can't just go up a a mountain and have this kind of experience. 
This is a God-led, grace-filled experiencing of the glory of God. And friends, we need to be praying that we are having these kind of moments. And they see the majestic glory of Christ. Listen to the description, that his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Again, if you think of Moses, when he was in the presence of God, his face glowed. They had, to, they had to veil it. But Christ is the better Moses, with a better covenant, with a better law. He shone as bright as the sun. He shone with an uncreated light from heaven. His radiant glory, Gregory of Nazianzus, the church father, says was more luminous than the sun. His clothing was utterly perfect. It was pure. It reflected the reality of who he is. Everything about Jesus was transfigured before their very eyes, and he was seen as he truly was. And I ask you this morning, church, who is the Jesus that you see? When you think of Jesus, what is it that you see? Is he majestic and glorious, or has he become a bit blasé? Is he clouded? Is he unimpressive? I love that Moses and Elijah are there, and that, that's simply just representing the, the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of the prophets. And, and they're talking to Jesus. And Peter sees this, and he, he eagerly wants to contribute to this remarkable event. And he asks, can I build three tents for you guys to, to sleep in? And he's not, he's not an idiot. He's not just thinking about giving them some place to rest. He is thinking about the tabernacle. So he's thinking about the very place that God dwelt on earth in the Old Testament, that they built a tent, and wherever Israel went, the tent went, and that's where God dwelt. He can see in this very place that heaven and earth are being mediated through the God-man Christ Jesus, and that God is making his home on earth amongst them. It's amazing. In 11 verse 5, God the Father just kind of interrupts him. While he was still speaking, it says, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God the Father, again, just interrupts him. Peter isn't an idiot. He's not unaware of what he's saying, but he's missing the ultimate point. He's trying to make a home for God to dwell in, and God's saying, actually, I've already made my home in the person of Christ, and I'm amongst you in him. And the Father's saying, and he is my beloved son. He is a son who captures all of my love, and he is perfect in every way. And because of that, he says, you should listen to everything that he says. And if he should be listened to it, I think it begs the question of what was he saying? Because we don't see Jesus then go into a, a kind of list of things he wants to talk about. And so context is really crucial to understanding this passage. Because the passage of the transfiguration, it's bookended by the cross. It's framed around the message of the cross. This passage ends with a statement about the death and resurrection of Christ, and it's preceded by Christ warning his disciples of his pending death in chapter 16. And he, he tells them, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to go away, I'm, and I'm going to raise again. But when Peter hears this in the, a few verses before, he actually rebukes Jesus for talking about suffering and death. He goes, no, I don't, I don't want you to talk about suffering. I don't want you to talk about death. You've got to stop that, Lord. 
And Jesus' response actually struck me really profoundly this week. So let's turn together to chapter 16, verse 23. Peter says, don't talk about suffering. Don't, Don't talk about the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then he tells his disciples, not only is he going to die on the cross, but the next verse, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Friends, in our church, Christ is leading us. And he is leading us into the way of the cross, which is ultimately the way of life and the way of freedom. This this transfiguration mountaintop is meant to give hope and it's meant to give assurance for the, the pending valleys that are about to come. He brings them up the mountain only to immediately descend back into the reality of life. And he's going on this spiritual high point, I'm going to show you exactly who I am, exactly what I'm like, so that when you go down, you have the confidence that I am God. Too easily, though, we want a different message. We don't want the transfiguration moment to be bookended by the reality of death and resurrection. And again, I was struck by Christ's statement to Peter. You aren't setting your mind on the things or the ways of God. When you don't want me to talk about this, you are setting your mind on the ways of the world, which will bring about death. And the transfiguration reveals to us the glory uh, of Christ. And it gives us a vision of the future that we have in him. And it gives us an idea of what humanity is meant to be like when the reality of sin and the reality of the fall is stripped away from us. The transfiguration shows us what true humanity actually is meant to look like. Not as we currently are, but as we're meant to be, as we were made to be, and as we will one day be again. Sin and death, it transformed our bodies and our souls and our hearts into something that's decaying, into something that is dying. But true life found in Christ, found in the the reality and the hope of the resurrection, will look like day in and day out transfiguration into his glory and into his likeness. There is only one way, friends, to get there. And that is the way of the cross. For the disciples, Jesus is seen for who he is. And he's seen for who he is to give them hope and to give them faith. Why? All of the disciples but John actually follow him into death. Literal death. We often talk about a figurative death. They're actually going to be persecuted. And Peter on a cross. And the Father is affirming this. He just warned you that you will follow him, pick up your own cross, and go wherever he goes. And now he's saying you have to listen to that. Don't miss that. Follow him. Choose his way of life. And I say to you, in every decision, the small decisions or potentially the big ones, which may one day be persecution. Again, not... Not because he wants his way to stifle our joy. His way does not make life rigid. But because his way is true life. And true life and true freedom is found in Christ and Christ alone. He desires us, friends, to truly thrive. 
He desires us to be full of joy. As Rob preached on salt and light, he desires us to have a positive impact wherever we go, to be the life of the party because we are in the joy of heaven. And he's saying if we receive his illuminating light, his radiant glory in the darkest parts of our hearts, in the darkest parts of our lives, our decaying, sinful, broken down lives will be transformed into his goodness and into his likeness. He's saying give up everything of this world, put it on the cross so that he can remove it from us. We can't remove it ourselves, but what we can do is open our hearts to receive his light and let him in so he can take everything off of us that's actually destroying us. Give up everything of this world this Lent. I mean, that potentially means giving up success, giving up acceptance in this world, and share in his death, knowing that if we follow him from the mountaintops to the valley, into death, into the cross, the promise is that we will taste of his resurrected life, that we will be transfigured into his glory, and will be seen as we were always meant to be. Our sinfulness, our brokenness, our shame, our condemnation, that is not the real you. Your addiction is not the real you. You were made to be like Christ in his image, full of his glory and radiating the light of heaven wherever you go. And anything less than that is a sign of the fall, not a sign of our newly created realities in Christ Jesus. Good news. Verse 6 notes that when the disciples heard the Father declare his love and affirmation of the Son, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. It's a holy moment. It's a fearful moment. They saw Christ for who he truly is and it shook them to their core. And I think that it shook them to their core rightly. When we see Christ for who he truly is, is it indifference Or is there a level of holy fear to go, oh my goodness, this is God. I love the next verse, verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. Jesus came near to them in their terror, and he touched them, and he embraced them in their weakness. He embraced them in their vulnerability, and he called them up, and he comforted them. And he said, rise. You saw me for who I am, and there's a holy terror by that, but you don't need to lie down afraid of me. Rise. Be Lethbridge, it's time to rise. And friends, too often, I think we live in fear of the way of Christ. When we talk about the cross, when we talk about picking up our own cross and following him, if our view of God is that he's angry and that he's a taskmaster and he just goes, I want you to do things my way because I said so, we have to make sure we do everything right all the time, then we haven't had a correct revelation of the nature of God. And so though there's holy fear in the reality of Christ, he comes to them and he draws near to them and he embraces them and they say, no, come with me because I'm gentle. We see him drawing them close. His illuminating light in that moment is transformative. It gives them the strength to stand up into who they're made to be. And they know that his way is the way of his love. It's the way of comfort. It's the way of freedom. It's the way of gentleness. 
And friends, he loves you too much to leave you in a state of brokenness and decay. And he offers you afresh this day to come to him. And he touches you and he embraces you. And he says, rise up out of this filth, out of the dirt, and come and be with me. And and as we are going into a season of Lent, we will be looking increasingly week after week, day after day, towards the cross towards a a death of the things that are actually killing us, towards Christ who will strip away the fallen humanity from us and bring us into the glory of his resurrection. And I ask you, what's killing you? What are the areas of this world that are plaguing you day in and day out? And do we know the reality of who Christ is enough to come to him when he calls When he says, come and be with me, or do we hesitate and stay away? Because his invitation for you this morning is to rise and to follow him in order that he could remove it from you. And it may mean that there's some pain in our dying to ourselves. I don't want to be naive about that. It's not always easy. But it will ultimately lead to life. And it'll lead to our own selves tasting of the transfiguration, that we would be transfigured day in and day out into his likeness. And Jesus, when he's done this to the disciples, verse 8 says, The vision's done. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They're left with Christ, and they're left with Christ alone, the true hope and their true desire. This morning, I I want to read a short excerpt from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, At this point, Eustace uh, has become a dragon, uh, and it said he'd become a dragon because of his greedy, dragonous thoughts in his hearts. Uh, And he's telling the story of his transformation from that. So I won't tell you how I became a dragon till I can tell the others and get it over, said Eustace. By the way, I didn't even know it was a dragon until I heard you all using the word when I turned up here the other morning. I want to tell you how I stopped being one. Fire ahead, said Edmund. Well, last night I was more miserable than ever. That beastly arm ring was hurting like anything. Is that all right now? Eustace laughed, a different laugh than Edmund had heard before, and slipped the bracelet easily off his arm. There it is, he said, and anyone who likes can have it as far as I'm concerned. Well, as I say, I was lying awake and wondering what on earth would become, had become of me. And then, but mind you, it may have all been a dream, I don't know. Go on, said Edmund with considerable patience. Well, anyways, I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected. A huge lion coming slowly towards me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer. I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand that. Well, it came close up to me and looked me straight in the eyes, and I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? I don't know now that you mention it. I don't know it did, but it told me all the same, and I knew it would have to do what it told me. So I got up and I followed it. And it led me along the way into the mountains, and there was always this moonlight over and round the lion wherever we went. So at last we came to the top of a mountain I've never seen before, and on top of this mountain there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it there was a well. 
I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything I thought I could get in. And, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe in it, I would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are a snarky sort of thing and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales became, became, began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here, and there my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness, or as, it, or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, it just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they'd been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. Only means I have another, smaller suit on underneath the first one. And I'll have to go get out of it, too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying on the, on the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it had spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know if you've ever picked a scab of a sore place? It hurts like Billy. Oh, but it's so much fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything but for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. As soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. Beautiful story. Friends, the, the transfiguration shows us the, the radiant glory of Christ. And it gives us hope that if we follow him into his way, we will also be transformed. We will be transfigured into his likeness. And it might hurt a little bit at first. But by his work, by the illumination of his transformative presence in our lives, we will become like him. Our efforts, I think, like Eustace, may hurt less. And we try to, to peel the scales off of ourselves so often. But they don't ever fully remove it. Only God can do that. Sin and death, friends, have cloaked who we truly are. 
We view ourselves and we view each other in that way, but nothing other than Christ and his cross can bring about the life and the freedom that we so deeply and desperately desire. And the invitation of the transfiguration is to come to Christ, to ascend up the mountain with him. And when you're there, to give him everything that's not of him, to put it on the cross and allow him to remove it. Give him your addictions. Give him your your lust. Give him your sexual immorality. Give him your gossip, your condemnation, your self-hatred, your shame. Come face to face with the reality of your own needs and weakness, and then in turn come face to face with the reality of the divine glory of Jesus Christ and his kindness which comes down to you and says, rise up and come and be with me. And though it's terrifying potentially and painful probably, just as the lion's claws peeled away the scale, beneath that is a renewed body and Christ's very clothes of righteousness and holiness being given to you. Friends, this week there is an invitation into life and into joy, and as Lewis said, to be a boy again, to be who we're truly meant to be. And he comes to each one of us, and he reaches out to you to touch you and to embrace you and to say, don't be afraid. Rise with me. Be with me. Step out of the dirt, step out of the mire, step out of the filth. Follow him up the mountain to true soul healing and a true transfigured life in him. Let's take a moment to pray as we go to the table.